Hello, product innovators. Today, we learn how to get new business-to-business -business sales for your product from an author and serial medical product entrepreneur. You're listening to the Product Startup Podcast, the show that helps bring your product idea to life by chatting with successful inventors, product developers, manufacturers, and hardware industry professionals. Our goal here is to get to the bottom of what makes a product successful, from initial idea to getting your product on store shelves. We're taking you step-by-step step to build a functional product and scale your product business. Hosted by Kevin Mako, one of North America's leading experts on hardware development for small product businesses. Now, onto the show. Welcome back, everyone. Today, I'm very excited to introduce Patrick Daly to the show. Patrick is the author of the book, Just Start Up. He's built over 20 products from invention idea to market over the past 25 years. Today, Patrick is going to share some valuable knowledge on how inventors, startups, and small manufacturers can get their first products sold by selling directly to other businesses, such as wholesalers, retailers, distributors, or other brands, and then how to accelerate your ongoing product development and sales through those channels. Now, onto the episode. Hey, Patrick, welcome to the show. Thanks, Kevin. Excited to have you on today to talk about selling B2B, very important subject and something that really all product entrepreneurs should be thinking about when they're launching or scaling their product as a major option for sales and distribution. I understand recently you just drove coast to coast. It is. Yeah, I've been in Canada. It's great to be here today. And so I, and to chat with you about B2B, but all aspects, I think, of innovation and business, you know, it's something that I've been doing for 25 years Left Ireland in 2018, was down in Barbados for a couple of weeks for some vitamin D, some sunshine, and uh, met a Canadian couple down there. And they said, you know what, if you're going to resettle anywhere, you should think about Canada. So I said, I will. And I uh, flew up to Montreal and went from 35 degrees plus to minus 15 in a day um, <laughs> on the centigrade scale. But it was great. And then I said, if I'm going to live in this country, I want to see it. So I jumped in a car and I drove from Halifax to Hope in BC. Took me three and a half weeks, over 10,000 kilometers, but a great journey and I had a good time. It's a huge country. Coming from Ireland, as I said, Ireland is like 300 miles high and 170 miles wide. So that was done in the first couple of hours of my journey. <laughs> yeah, I drove across <laughs> Ireland once. It took me uh, you know, a day and a half with hotel stays in, in a month there. <laughs> so, there you go. There you go. There yeah, you go. I hear yeah. you. Now, look, this is kind of a testament to your personality because you started out as a young entrepreneur. You're a classic major product entrepreneur success story. You've done over 20 products over your career, many of them number one in your industry. How did it all start? And how did you get to where you are today? So I was around engineering from a very young age, engineering and product development and kind of that whole discussion was in our house when we were growing up. And um, I wanted to test my own kind of business development approach then and whether the entrepreneurship side was in me. So when I was 14 years old, got a food van and started selling burgers and fries for my summer holiday down the beach in Southern Ireland. And uh, I did well. I did well. Met a lot of people. What I keep saying is I met a lot of hangry people. So five o'clock in the <laughs> evening, people are coming along. They're hungry. They're angry. They want their food. But what it did was it gave me a great introduction to entrepreneurship and how to take something from nothing to something, I guess. And, and that was really, really important. Then I went on, went to Germany when I was 18. Again, a last minute decision. Just flew to Germany, said I want to see Europe. I want to travel. Um, and I stayed there for two years. I worked with, with engineering companies some contracts with companies like BMW. Um, so great engineering introduction along the way. I came back to Ireland then and I joined a company that was Seattle-based, but they had their European division in, in Cork in Ireland. And I worked with them for five years. Within that five-year uh, time frame, I developed a bunch of products, one of which was a, an a unit that was incorporated into an aircraft seat to reduce pressure 
and assist circulation and therefore assist in uh, the prevention of DVT or deep vein thrombosis and long haul flights particularly. So that was a great introduction to kind of that engineering. Aerospace uh, engineering is a highly regulated zone, obviously, so did a lot of learning there as well. Um, And then a director of nursing in a hospital, a large hospital, came to me and she said, I was telling her about the aerospace, uh, the the aircraft seating product. And she said, if you can take that pressure reducing aspect and put it into a mattress product for hospitals and give give us a product that A, is pressure reducing, B, obviously is comfortable for the patient, is easy to kind of uh, use and is not too expensive, then we'll take it. So like six months later, I had the idea, formed bits and pieces of um, my past experience and kind of said, if I put this jigsaw of technology together, it should be a product. We launched it a year later, and that was the pressure ease product. Within the following year, or within the year thereafter, we had um, the number one selling product in the market. We supplied to 60, 70% of hospitals in Ireland, started selling in the UK, started selling in Germany. Um, so it did really, really well. And uh, part of that whole in, uh, experience was all around the innovative thinking aspect of things. Because if I was to wear a kind of hat, it's about innovation on all aspects, not only on the engineering side, but also on the connection of engineering and sales or the various bits of the business that are necessary to, to, to hit success. That's amazing. Quite a success story. And of course, that kickstarted you off to do many more products, both in direct selling and in the, in the B2B avenue, but also in licensing. Today, talking about B2B business-to-business sales, this is talking about selling to wholesalers, to distributors, retailers, possibly even other companies in your space or whatnot. How do you mm-hmm. get started with selling your product? Let's say you've got your product ready to go or you're near ready to go and you're looking to now sell. Uh, first and foremost, why is B2B important? And then second, how do you start selling in that market? That's a great question because the two aspects of it are knowing that your product will fit first of all. So do your research, get the questions asked at the very beginning. Um, Irrespective of whether you're a startup, whether you're a lone entrepreneur, or whether you're in a a very large company, I would ask those kind of questions. And you're kind of sanity checking your idea, sanity sanity checking the fit of your product because I think, well, the saying that I came up with maybe and I heard about uh, 10 years ago was uh, somebody said to me, there's a huge gap in that market. And I'd, my response was, but is there a market in that gap? You know, is there an actual commercial opportunity for that product? Um, and I kind of put that hat on when I'm looking at something. To answer your question about the specifics of starting B2B sales, for me, the best way to do that is kind of traditional, but it's pick up the phone to people and ask them questions. If they're opinion leaders or if they're knowledgeable or if they know their industries, they'd happily share that information with you. Um, so look through your contact lists, look through your LinkedIn network, um, make contact with people that you know already, because people that you know and people that you trust and they trust you, they will get you up that learning curve an awful lot faster because it's a reference uh, factor. It's a reference value that you're going to get. And that endorsement will open doors to, let's say, higher level decision makers. And those higher level decision makers at B2B level could be your customers and will most likely be your customers when you finish developing that product because they have a degree then of, I guess, involvement from the very outset and keep them informed. You know, if it takes you two years to develop your product, give them a call every three months and say, hey, this is where we're at. Um, Any kind of nudges or steers on how we can improve this or and they kind of are de facto uh, owners of, of the idea to some degree. Obviously, they're not factual owners but you're the owner, 
but at least you're getting their input from seriously knowledgeable, experienced people. When you launch your product, you're going to have your list of your shortlist of target customers and tell them we're ready to go. Um, give them a kind of a preview. This is a sneak preview of, the, of my launch. This is where I'm going. In some cases, you'll find that the bigger companies, if you're an early stage entrepreneur or if you're a startup, they won't want to let you outside the exclusive zone. You know, They'll say, we'll take that technology. And that's a great way to launch. Just be careful when you're doing it that you don't lock your technology in a box. Um, and this is a key aspect as well. If you want to commercialize and you want to get maximum bang for your buck and maximum return on investment, just make sure you're not locked in one zone and, or that you cannot get out of. And this is key. Exit clauses are important. <clears throat> um, in licensing, for example, Kevin, you mentioned licensing. This is a great model if you're a lone entrepreneur or if you're an early stage startup. Just make sure that you're not locked in a zone, that you have an exit, uh, a way of getting out. If sales aren't hit, for example, you put in a sales quota, you put in a sales target. Um, if not, that's not hit within a reasonable amount of time, you need to be able to walk away. You need to be able to exit your technology from that arrangement. Exclusivity is a, is a great topic. I'm glad you brought that up because it's one of those things that we see in a lot of entrepreneurs, especially when we're developing these products and eventually, you know, some great company says, look, we'll, we'll take it on. We want an exclusive deal, but the devil's in the details. And two right. things that we're always looking for, um, one of them that you mentioned is sales quota. So if you are going to offer somebody exclusive rights to sell your product, mm -hmm. make sure that you have that quota baked in there, possibly even have it further baked into your protection. Like maybe they own a certain geography or a certain type of customer or whatnot. So you're, you're only boxing it in within maybe one particular industry, but then also box in the time frame. So if you're going to have a sales quota, of course, well, is it within a year or three years, or is there a growth curve or whatever else in there? Really important to have those things understood and not get too caught up with the excitement of having an exclusive deal on your table. Well, the other thing that I, I really think is important as well is really in terms of using your network to start. And I don't want listeners out there to be afraid of that concept. And as well, you know, one of the pushbacks that we see when we talk about using your network is, well, I, I don't know anybody that's a buyer at Walmart, as an example. Well, you may not necessarily need to. What you need to do is look through your LinkedIn list or your contact list and just find somebody who may know somebody. Or maybe yep. know somebody that knows someone that knows someone. Right? Absolutely. Like, just make sure. Just make that. sure they're complementary and not competing. Um, yes. Any contacts that you make, you just don't want to prematurely disclose your invention, your idea, your innovation. Just make sure that you know that these people are objective and biased. Now, some people in the industry are, you know, they're broad-minded enough to say, look, you know, I'm kind of quasi-competing, but like I'm still happy to give you information because industries need to develop. It's not just specific companies. We need to develop industries. We need to develop sectors. Um, uh, so if somebody calls me and if they say, look, I'm thinking of developing a product that is slightly on the verges of competing with you, I'm not going to put the phone down. I'm just going to say, okay, well, don't tell me too much unless you want to sign an NDA. Um, but tell me you know, what you think you can share at this stage, and I'll happily give you my feedback. I have no problem with that. Because if we make a bigger pie, i.e. make a bigger industry, then we all share. Um, and I think that's the, 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 a key element there as well. So, But in the early stages, particularly if you are running on a kind of limited fund yourself, be cautious and be careful about what you, what you let out there. Especially um, pre-patent. And that's, in, 100%, that's really important. 100%, yeah. Right? And this is premature disclosure of the invention will just completely jeopardize and undermine your patent application. So if you are, and if you have to disclose information, make sure you've got a watertight NDA um, or just be 
circumspect and be cautious about what you put out there. Yeah, that's great advice. Now, in terms of selling B2B, one of the things that startups are afraid of is that, well, I'm, I'm new. I'm, uh, I'm nervous because I'm competing against all these major players. Now, obviously, anyone who's listening to this podcast generally has an idea and an idea that is you know, some advantage. You've created some sort of an invention that has some sort of benefit out there. You know, It's a market gap that you're filling. Hopefully, like you said, there, there's a market in that gap. Uh, mm-hmm. But also that it's it's something that is proprietary and, and unique or provides some sort of value, additional value than what's on the market. I love one of the analogies that you talked about with me earlier, which is the speedboat versus super tankers. And I think mm-hmm. that gives a lot of comfort to early stage companies when they're pitching in the B2B market. Can you walk through that model? Sure, absolutely. And um, I've been kind of keeping that model and keeping that focus for a number of years. And last year when I had taken the foot off the gas a little bit, this is going to sound co- contradictory, but I wrote a book um, when I was traveling around. <clears throat> and that book is just startup. It's a guide to building startup. And one of the chapters in that talks about speed and it talks about speed of a startup. One of our key advantages as startups, um, when you're starting in and out, is speed. Because the super tanker is a huge company that has systems, processes, procedures. And if I'm a startup, then I can pretty much make decisions on the ground there and then, you know, and okay, I'll talk to a couple of people around me and say, is this good to go? Um, Or you sit around the table as a kind of a small team, you say, are we good with this? Has everybody, you know, ticked all the boxes, and then go. That level of speed, you can do something in six months that will probably take a much larger company two years. So if you get that product established um, and don't be fixated or don't be focused on timeframes, you know, just get the product done, get it right, get all the boxes ticked. And when you have that package ready, and this is a kind of a B2B licensing element in here as well, those larger companies are continually looking for acquisitions. They're continually looking for licensing plays because if I'm the CEO or CFO or CTO of a large company, I'm going to think, okay, it's going to take me two years to get that done. It's going to take me 50 million. Um, I'm going to have to get systems from all over the world or all over North America to get in, uh, get involved and talk to each other, et cetera, et cetera. That's the slow moving element of product development within large organizations. They're not all the same. Some companies, are, some large companies have honed the system, but I still think that our startup advantage or any startup's advantage is speed. If you put something in front of them and say, this is my offering, it's either patent pending or it's secure, make sure you secure the IP. Put something very concise together because decision makers in those big companies, time is of the essence. You've got to do it quickly. Put it in front of them as a one pager and just say, look, this is what I've got. Are you interested in licensing this? And that could be your way to launch through at least one channel. Going back to the points that we talked about in terms of locking into exclusivity as well, Kevin, you made some great points there as well. But I think the key aspect is never lose your own identity in that arrangement. Because you may have to relaunch a year later if it didn't work out when you're licensing a product. And you may have to, if you relaunch without and you're completely anonymous, unknown, then it'll look like you're copying their product that they've tried to launch. Uh, so you need to keep some level of sub-identity that is out there. Even if it's a social media presence, you need to retain that level of identity if you can. <clears throat> Sometimes the licensee company will say to you, okay, well, if the check is big enough, then you completely stay in the background. And that's a call that you have to make on a commercial perspective. Um, but if you think this has mileage and if you, if you have, if there's any nervousness whatsoever that the licensing arrangement that you're going to go into is somewhat fragile, make sure you've got that exit clause and allow yourself to have a springboard when you do come out of that. And exit clauses are simply fair. It's just making sure that both sides totally. are coming up to their end of the bargain, right? So you shouldn't yeah. feel it as a startup that... 
um, that you're, that you're being unreasonable to them because they are pitching you that they're going to do great things with your product. So as such, you need to hold them to, to certain threshold, you know, at least right. a minimum bar that you're comfortable with to scale your business. But I love your comment about identity. And it's something that's, like you said, is can be very easy to do just on social media or whatnot. But of course that has to be baked into your agreement as well. If it is an mm-hmm. exclusive deal and you're white labeling it to them, meaning you're providing the technology, they're putting their brand on it, they may not mm-hmm. let you do that. So you right. have to be sure that you've got the legal structure in place so you're allowed to have an identity. And obviously, you want to be on good terms with that company that's promoting your product, uh, whether it be mm-hmm. white labeled or whether it be your brand on it. Ideally, if you can get a deal where there's exclusivity, you've got great terms, and it's your brand on it, then you kind of win in all worlds. But again, all that's built into the negotiation as you're exactly. You know, or if you can take the white label route, and if you can get a white label and then uh, start marketing your own brand, yes, that's the win-win scenario. So you've got your own uh, straight channel into the market, but you've also got the white label channel, which is generating probably, you know, margins are, can can be pretty okay in that. You can get a, a healthy margin, but what you're getting is constancy. You're getting consistency um, through that channel. Whereas when you're marketing your own product, there's always an uncertainty. You don't know how it's going to go. When I'm planning something out um, and I'm projecting, I'll project the expected scenario, the best case scenario, and the worst case scenario. And that'll be a range of expectation. I'll put my numbers into that model, you know, and I'm going to say to myself, okay, if sales are 50% less than we expect, then what are we going to, is there going to be a lot of red ink all over my PL and, and balance sheet? You know, am I going to be losing money? And who's going to fund that? And how are we going to fund that? If it's going to be super popular and I've exceeded all expectations, again, how are we going to fund that? Because you need working capital. So think laterally when you're doing that. But going back to the point of white labeling combined with direct branding, uh, that is a win-win scenario if you can get it done. Um, and multiple white label channels, ultimately, uh, which own brand behind it, uh, would be great. For example, you could say, <clears throat> this is ABC product. And it could be ABC inside or powered by ABC on four or five levels, but you could have the ABC direct uh, top line brand under your own name. And that will give you real value because at some stage then, if you're thinking of building that startup, let's say it's an early stage company again, because I've been around startups for 20 plus years now. So I actually love the space, even though it's tough. You know, it's sometimes tough. It's very, very rewarding when things go right. It's very tough when it goes wrong. And, you know, any entrepreneur that's been in startup for uh, the number of years that I've been in there, if they tell you it's been a you know easy uh, route, uh, no problems, it's just not right. <laughs> um, so, but for me, I think I'd look at it and say, um, where do I want to be? Do I want to keep this like as a profit generator, or do I want to build it, uh, scale it, and sell it as a trade sale, a company? Or technology, a technology IP technology bubble uh, basket. I can take that out. So really kind of map out where you think you want to be in three to five years and then map your strategy of commercialization. B2B in that space is a very lucrative area. It's constant. Keep a good relationship with your customers, with your B2B customers. Make sure everybody's happy. Talk to them fairly frequently without you know overdoing it. Um, if they need anything, responsiveness is key. Making sure that they know uh, what you want and have a kind of that win-win association with them and uh, that's what I, uh, that's a formula that I found to be really successful. That's really a winning touch. Much appreciated for you mentioning all those things. A couple of things that really resonate with me there is first of all, your communication with your buyers and your mm-hmm. roadmap. And those two go together. It really becomes important as you're considering how your brand is going to expand. And as a inventor, 
innovator, product manager, designer, whatever position you're in or multiple hats that you're in. The one thing that you have to realize in the startup mode is that you're somebody who comes up with innovative ideas, especially if you start having success with your product. You're somebody who can, you're a visionary. Mm-hmm. And as a visionary, you need to believe in yourself that you will likely come up with new vision in the future, especially if, as you mentioned, Patrick, you're talking regularly with your customers, because not only are you a visionary, but if you're communicating a lot with your customers, they will start telling you, you know, what your product's doing wrong. How could it be improved? Maybe another product that you could work on. So as you're planning your brand out, as you mentioned, three to five years out, one of the things that you want to really be thinking of is how do you actually scale your offering? How do you come up with your next product? How do you come up with maybe a better version of your product or even a cheaper version of your product for, for a, a different audience or a different region? And all of that stuff all comes down to, you know, a big part comes down to your vision, but in combination with listening to your customers on a regular Absolutely. Basis. And I'll give, you, I'll give you an actual example of that. When I developed them um, <clears throat> about 10 years ago, I developed a topper for medical, um, uh, a sleep topper. And it was designed to, again, to prevent pressure ulcers and have comfort. But I put in an infection control feature into that product. And I said, look, when I launched it at that time, I spoke to the clinical people and they said, yeah, it's great. It does the job that we want it to do. Um, but I said, the infection control aspect, I think of that is going to be probably its biggest selling point. Um, we launched it eight years ago and it's been licensed ever since. And then two years ago, I got a call from one of the people that I was probably annoying about the infection control fact- factor. And uh, <clears throat> she was a director of nursing and she said, um, there's something coming around the corner, uh, uh, an infectious disease. And she said, we found that your product, the infection control aspect, and she said, I know you're going to say I was right. You were right and all that kind of thing. But she said, at the end of the day, she said, this function that you put into the product is really, really um, patient-friendly, user-friendly, uh, and infection-friendly, infection-control-friendly. Um, so the idea of the, the product itself is like a two-and-a-half-inch layer that's on top of an existing mattress, and it's fully sealed. So you can actually disinfect the topper on the hospital bed so you don't have to send it outside for extra, for specialized decontamination. It's a wipe-down scenario, wash-down under typical cleaning protocols for a hospital. So then I thought, okay, well, and we're talking about technology roadmaps and next iterations and evolution of technology or evolution of a product. Um, I talked to the people around me and I said, look, I think if we take this from medical now and put it into, health, or into home and hotel and hospitality, because everybody's super conscious about hygiene assurance now in the home or hotel setting. Um, and this is traditionally when we sleep on a mattress surface, you know, we, do, we can't open it up and clean the interior unless you get in some kind of specialized company to, to, to decontaminate or disinfect the product. So what we've done is we've taken the proven topper sim care and put it inside a mattress structure for home and for hotels. So you zip off the top layer of the cover Laundry, standard laundering washing machine, everyday domestic washing machine. And then you wipe down the interior core. So you've got a hygienically assured sleep surface. And <clears throat> the other aspect of that is, I know I'm selling my product a little bit here now, so forgive me. But I think what I want to get across is that sometimes by evolution or by evolving, by, by markets evolving or the environmental situation changing, a product becomes more specific. And if you can think about the longer road when you're launching, say, all right, I've got product A here today, but there could be product B and there could be product C. And as you said, Kevin, visionary is the aspect of it. When I listen to customers and I kind of take bits and pieces of that information, I envision what the roadmap for the technology is going to be. How long is it going to last? Is it going to be like a five-year window that this expires, that we get to this product adoption curve and then we get to maturity and decline? 
or is it going to last longer? And if so, how important is the existing product in our overall uh, product mix? Um, and do we need to look at replacing it in three years' time or ad- additioning uh, onto it in three years' time or evolving it out? Jumping back to the point about the infection control aspect of the sleep surface, on average, uh, we sleep six and a half hours out of 24 on a surface that we traditionally and typically couldn't actually get in to clean thoroughly. Um, so for us, and you're talking like we're talking kind of innovation, but sometimes innovation is very much about logic. Um, and it, it, when I speak to customers, customers, I'd say to a customer, so tell me the pros and cons of the competing products. You know, why are, what, what works and what doesn't work? And they'll give me the specifics, but I'll walk away and I'll think like it's going on in my head for a while. And I'm saying, okay, in between those lines, there's a message. And that's the grasping or gathering of, in, uh, of the idea, of the innovation, of the opportunity. Um, so that's a big, long way of saying that, you know, evolution of technology and mapping out road, a, a technology roadmap to fit both the commercial and the functional and the technical requirements are all, the, uh, all of those, all of the above. That's really important. Um, and for me, it's a formula that I've relied on. And thankfully, it's been largely in the main successful. That's such a powerful example. And it comes back to the analogy you said on speedboat versus you know, tanker ship. Yeah. And the, if you're planning ahead and you're listening to your customers and you start to see, like you said, reading between the lines of what their pain points are, what the opportunities are that they're presenting... You can move your speedboat quick. You can adapt to your product and find that that niche and go after it aggressively before the big corporate uh, folks, product developers, even started finishing up their planning for it. You're already moving. You're developing. You're modifying. You're getting your manufacturing set up, and you're a proven example of that. So as soon as COVID hit, you're able to take your technology, listen to your customers modify it and create a hugely successful new entire vertical out of mm-hmm. the technology that you'd already developed that was already mm-hmm. part of that roadmap you'd built in. So it's an amazing story. Patrick, I really appreciate you jumping on the call to share all these words of wisdom today with us. Uh, much appreciated and we'll talk soon. Absolutely. Great. Um, so pleasure to talk today and uh, to anyone's listening, good luck out there and um, hope this was helpful today. Thanks again. Take care. Cheers. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Product Startup Podcast, the show that teaches you what it really takes to bring your product to market and turn it into a big success. This podcast series is brought to you by Maco Design and Invent, the original and leading firm in North America to provide global caliber end-to-end physical consumer product development to startups, inventors, and small product business clients. If you're looking for product development help on your invention, head over to to macodesign.com. That's M-A-K-O design.com for a free consultation from one of Maco Design's four design studios from coast to coast. Thanks for listening and see you next time.